You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for gathering us here today, and we thank you um, for the ways that you communicate your gospel to us. Uh, We think especially of how you communicate it to us uh, through the sacrament of your body and blood. Uh, Lord, give us grateful hearts and hearts that feed upon you. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, uh, I think it's funny that you have two choices This morning, you can either hear about the Lord's Supper in this class or in the newcomer's class. Uh, That was not intentional. That was a mistake uh, of scheduling, Uh, but wanted to talk about the Lord's Supper. I I treated this subject, I think it was last fall, uh, and uh, really kind of got into it a little bit, and we've been talking about it over the past couple years, Uh, but wanted to arrive at it this morning in uh, where the articles do, Uh, and uh, we will do a little bit of backtracking because... Uh, a future class will be talking about the overarching uh, understanding of what a sacrament is, and then we'll also be talking about uh, baptism. Uh, but the Lord's Supper, there's never been uh, more controversy over any other subject than that of Holy Communion. Uh, we all uh, have, during the Reformation, there were uh, different understandings of baptism, uh, but even the, the different understandings of baptism never led uh, to people being unchurched. And by that I mean if you were baptized, and it stands to this day, if you're baptized in the Baptist church, the Roman Catholics acknowledge that baptism. Uh, if uh, you're baptized, uh, now the Baptists might have a hard time if you were baptized in, uh, if you were baptized in anything but as a professing believer and by means of submersion, I've told you the story of Alistair McGrath. You know who Alistair McGrath is? He's the only person who's held two professorships at the same time at Oxford. He's a brilliant man. And Alistair McGrath was debating a Baptist. The Baptist said that, uh, went so far as to say, if you are not baptized by immersion, it's a sin. He went that far. And Alistair, totally nonplussed, looked at him and says, well, I was baptized by immersion. And the Baptist was alarmed, he said, because the dean of the cathedral in Belfast uh, had advanced Parkinson's and dropped him in the medieval font. And down in the water, young Alistair went and had to be fished out. Um, uh, So win-win. But, you know, we don't get uh, as wound up about baptism as we do about Holy Communion. And on the one hand, I I think that that shows that we're probably wrong-headed about a lot of things. Uh, And this conversation requires a great deal of humility. And I want to frame it by saying, I'm not really interested in what anybody else thinks. Not you. But it does us no good to start comparing ourselves to Roman Catholics or Baptists or whoever it might be. Uh, Someone left angrily. Um, (laughs) There goes our Baptist. Uh, um, But but really what matters is, is what God's Word has to say about it. And so when it comes to our understanding of the Lord's Supper, uh, we're really not trying to say, well, I'm making this decision or I'm articulating it this way over and against somebody else's position. So that that would be wrong-headed and and just flat-out wrong uh, for us to do because the standard is not 
what any particular denomination has to say. The standard is what God has to say about it. And also, interestingly enough, what God doesn't have to say about it. Because Holy Communion, there's a lot of open-endedness to all of it. And there's been a development of doctrine, but I want to be very careful about how far we develop it. Uh, So let's look at the Reformers. A lot of ink and blood was spilled uh, over this issue. This is the issue that sent Cranmer and Latimer and Ridley and everybody else to the stake. This was the defining issue. It was the presenting issue, I should say. The bigger issue was the issue of justification, but it manifested itself in the lives of the Reformers, and this is what got them burned. So much so that Queen Mary blamed a a German named Martin Bootser, who died uh, in 1551, and as a German, actually, he was a Regis Professor of Divinity at Cambridge. He had a profound impact on the 1552 Book of Common Prayer, which by and large is the prayer book that we have right now. And uh, so uh, much was he blamed for the Church of England's understanding of Holy Communion that Mary had Bootser exhumed from Great St. Mary's Church in Cambridge, his bones tied to the stake and burned. Now, Elizabeth I rehabilitated him. Uh, she, uh, she sent out a royal decree that says, no, Bootser was fine. Uh, but at that point, he was scattered to the wind. Uh, you can go today, and there's a little tiny plaque there at Great St. Mary's Church. Uh, and Bootser, in fact, is probably one of the great unsung heroes of the Reformation. Uh, he died uh, thanks to English uh, weather, he said. He was always getting sick, uh, but he died in 1551. Uh, but look up Bootser, B-U-C-E-R. He's worth looking at. So Bootser had a big impact on Cranmer and uh, the articles. So I'm going to read this to us. You can follow along. The Supper of the Lord is not only a sign of the love that Christians ought to have among themselves one to another, but rather it is a sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death. I'm going to take this piecemeal, so let's just stop right there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes, but in the following instructions I do not commend you. This is bad news. Uh, Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. See, that's the benefit of heresy. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. First things first, I think that it's important that we use Bible language. I know that people kind of cringe at the notion of calling uh, communion the Lord's Supper, but that's how the Bible refers to it. It's a meal, right? It's meant to be a meal, and it's meant to be a communal meal, which is from where we get Holy Communion. And what the article right out of the gate says, the supper of the Lord is not only a sign that love that Christians ought to have among themselves, one to another. Right? So when we come, we don't come individually. We come as a body. We eat a meal together. We kneel together. Now, this has been largely lost because at the time of the Reformation, what uh, the Church of England did is it got rid of what they called altars and they put in tables. 
And what they would do is they'd move the table to the middle of the church space. Now, that would be a hard thing for us to do because it would just slide on down the hill um, uh, in, in our nave. Uh, but the idea was that you would all gather around the table and the minister, it actually was explicit, it said the minister is to stand at the north end of the table. And so they would stand at the north end. And one of the things that um, the, the more Protestant element of the Church of England did, and you still have a couple guys that do that, they still stand at the north end just to make a point, which means that would be me standing at the sort of short, it would be me standing right here, basically, doing communion from here, which is fairly distracting, right? But the point was being made. But it's, we all, it's us all coming together as God's family around his table. And so often I run into people who treat it as an individual act. Now, it is God communicating to us individually. But in fact, we, uh, we go on um, um, uh, in, in there where um, he says that uh, it's in a different article. Sorry. Anyway, we'll get to it. Uh, but basically, he says that these, you shouldn't have private communions except for cases of illness. In fact, I like the way that the Episcopal Church is supposed to have done it, uh, and that is that at the end of the final service on Sunday mornings, the, the lay people come forward to take the communion to the shut-ins immediately following the service, sort of extending the table, if you will. And when I go and I do communion, for those of you who have ever had me do this, I don't just sort of take out the bread and take out the wine and say, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. I go through the whole communion service. Why? Because it's a corporate act, right? It's, it's, it's us doing it uh, together. But we do treat it individually, and here's some ways that I see that manifested, even in my own life. How many of you, don't raise your hands, have ever gone to a church that prohibits you from taking communion unless you're a member of that denomination? Almost all of us. We've, we've either been to you know, a wedding or a funeral or something like that, and we're mad, aren't we? Who, who are you to say that I, I can't take uh, communion? So most of us just lie and say that we're whatever denomination it is, or, or when we get up there, we wink at the minister and, uh, and, and move along. Um, but that's actually to have a misunderstanding of the communion. So I remember one time we went to a wedding and they had communion and I had a family member and they're like, are you going to go up? And I said, no. And they said, aren't you upset by that? I said, no. I don't know who any of these people are. Like I, I don't know who these people are. Like it would make somewhat of a mockery of the, of the table for me to go up because I've reduced it just to an individual thing. In the same way, as we're admonished in the Gospels, if you have beef with your brother or sister, sort it out before you go to the table. When I was in St. Helena's Beaufort, uh, which was such a fun place because people drank a lot and sued one another, and it was sort of, sort of like Dallas, and uh, the show, not the city. Uh, and um, we had a situation where, now remember, St. Helena, as if you would know this, Beaufort, South Carolina has a population of 10,000 people. St. Helena's has a membership of 1,500. 15% of the population is somehow affiliated with St. Helena's, the equivalent of the Advent having a membership of 150,000. So it, it, it's unavoidable. So we had uh, a guy and some other parishioners who were involved in a land uh, 
deal. And some other people who were involved in it were suing, they were suing one another. And what would happen at communion is that if they saw that they were in one of the two lines, if they were in the same line, they'd crisscross. They'd go to the opposite side of the rail because uh, they thought that was okay, right? Uh, but in fact, we went to all of them and said, until y'all get this sorted out, one way or the other, you can't come to the table. Right? Because people noticed this. Uh, and I believe they were eating and drinking condemnation uh, upon themselves because they were not discerning uh, the Lord's body. They thought that it was some, they weren't able to come to ta- the table uh, as uh, reconciled believers. Now, that doesn't mean that you, somebody from the Advent stole your parking spot and you're mad at them or anything like that. Uh, but if you don't feel comfortable kneeling beside a particular individual in the congregation you're a member of, you need to think twice about going forward to receive communion until you've reconciled with them. There's actually an exhortation in the prayer book that normally only gets read. It actually gets read at the 5 o'clock, believe it or not. Uh, our, our hip service uh, is the most traditional in that regard. Uh, and, sometimes, and we read it in part uh, for Ash Wednesday. But that's why we call it Holy Communion, right? It's all of us coming together as uh, a family, imperfect as we are. But rather, it's also a sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death, insomuch that to such as rightly, worthily, and with faith receive the same. The bread which we break is a partaking of the body of Christ, and likewise the cup of blessing is a partaking of the blood of Christ. So right out of the gate, what we're saying is that Christ is spiritually present when we come to him at the table. But what does that mean? I've got uh, right now... um, there are some parents, uh, and I'm with you 100%, that are very anxious about whether or not their children should take communion. And I asked one of them, well, what do you think the threshold should be for taking communion? And they said, well, I think that they ought to be able to articulate what's happening at the table in order to take Holy Communion. And I said, can you articulate for me what's happening at the table? Um, There's an element of mystery But this is where it gets a bit controversial and where the articles are trying to define it. How is Christ present? He's present spiritually. He's present spiritually. And in fact, it goes on of the wicked which not eat. Let's skip down there because the wicked and such as be void of a lively faith. Unbelievers, although they do carnally and visibly press their teeth, as St. Augustine said, the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, yet in no wise are they partakers of Christ but rather to their condemnation do eat and drink the sign or sacrament of so great a thing. Which means what? Does that mean that if a guy in the congregation, he's not a believer, if he comes forward and receives the bread and the wine, does he partake of Christ? No. Even though Jesus is, <clears throat> excuse me, is spiritually present, What determines that presence? Faith. The the Reformers had a great way of talking about this. They called the Lord's table, they called it the visible word, the visible gospel. And they called the pulpit the audible word, the audible gospel, that whenever the gospel is preached, whenever it's proclaimed, Christ is present there. And those who can receive the word from the pulpit are those who have been given spiritual ears to hear. 
In the same way, those who are putting their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as faint and as waning as that might be, he meets you at the table. He meets you at the table, but in a spiritual way. In Beaufort, we had a guy who was dying of jaw cancer, and it got so bad that eventually they had to wire his jaw shut. And he came every Thursday to our healing service, uh, praying for healing, but also recognizing that, that it, he, was probably, he was praying now that God would be glorified in his death. And he would come forward. There was always communion as a part of that healing service. And he would come forward, but because his jaw was wired shut, he couldn't really eat or drink the bread or the wine. So did he partake of Christ? Yes. Whether or not he pressed his teeth against the bread or drank it. If you're stuck on a desert island, right, good luck factoring, figuring out a way to make those little wafers on a desert island, much less bread. Um, but uh, if you're communing with Christ and you're putting your faith on him, you're feeding upon him spiritually, which is why we say the words and why we're so committed to the words that we say at the administration of Holy Communion, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed upon him in thy heart by faith. The eating is, with the, is spiritually with the heart, not physically with the mouth. Uh, otherwise, uh, I would be spending all of my day handing out communion uh, to everybody uh, that could possibly uh, handle it. But the Reformers and the Bible agreeing with this with St. Paul is saying no, uh, that those who come to him in faith, which means that God is actually not more present at the communion table than he is anywhere else when there's the preaching of the word. In fact, the prayer book actually requires that if you're going to do Holy Communion, you have to have a sermon. That's not true of morning prayer. Morning prayer doesn't require uh, a sermon because it's thought that the, all the readings and, and the canticles and the liturgy itself does most of the heavy lifting. Uh, but when it, to avoid any understanding that, that you can have the Lord's table apart from the preached word, it requires uh, a sermon. And so if God is more present at the table than he is, say, in the pulpit, then the Advent is in grave sin for not having Holy Communion every single service. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't receive it differently. And I mean that in a different sense than we've been talking about right now. Some of you are visual learners and not audible learners. Some of you go to which you kind of ping pong, wherever communion's happening, that's where you're going. And I think that that's fine, as long as what you're saying is, I feel that I understand the gospel better when I come to the table than just simply listening. That, that makes total sense to me, and I honor that. But if you're saying, well, I don't think that Jesus is as much present in a morning prayer service as he is at the table service, then you're beginning to ebb into superstition. Right? And I mean, some people, obviously there are denominations that do uh, believe that. So in the Roman Catholic Church, when a priest is ordained, they're handed a paten and chalice, which are just fancy words for the cup and the plate that communion is served with, and they're given power and authority to sacrifice for the sins of the living and the dead. 
That's what the bishop says uh, to the newly ordained priest. When an Anglican uh, priest is ordained, anybody been to a service and what gets handed to them? A Bible. And the bishop says, take this as a sign of your authority to preach the word of God and to rightly and duly administer the sacraments ordained of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our authority is not in that we've been changed or we're different. Our authority comes from the Word, which commands us to baptize and commands us to to preside uh, at the table of the Lord's Supper. So the body of Christ is taken and eaten in the Supper only after a heavenly and spiritual manner. And the mean whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten in the Supper is faith. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not by Christ's ordinance reserved, carried about, lifted up, or worshipped. Um, that may seem archaic, but actually today uh, that still happens in some churches, uh, meaning uh, if you've ever been to uh, a Corpus Christi Day service, uh, that's, uh, that's a big thing where they parade through the streets with a big uh, uh, piece of communion bread uh, through, the, uh, through the streets of the town that they're in. Uh, and also in some uh, denominations, uh, they treat... Uh, the bread and the wine as if something supernatural has happened to them. Uh, I've even encountered people uh, stealing communion bread uh, to plant in their front yard so that their house sells a little bit quicker. It's not, it's, I'm, I'm being serious, that, that, that's happened before. Um, uh, so um, there is a sort of uh, mystic quality given uh, to the elements, uh, but that's actually why the reformers wanted the wine that they drank to be the kind of wine that they would normally drink. And the bread that was used at communion would normally be the bread that you would use in your home. Everyday things used for extraordinary purposes. Everyday things for extraordinary uh, purposes. Uh, Now, uh, being Episcopalians, the port that we drink uh, may be what you drink every night after your uh, your meal. Bumpers to you. Uh, But... uh, But I doubt if I went into your cabinet, I would find those wafers. Or if I went to a cocktail party at your house, that you'd have little cheeses uh, on on top of them. Uh, There's no mistake. I mean, that's the funny thing. The wine is easily mistaken for wine, but you can't mistake that stuff for bread. Um, And so, uh, and they've got little crosses on it. So it's hard not to think uh, in in terms of that. And yet, uh, what we're doing, obviously, according to Paul and according to the reformers, this is serious business. Right? This is not something to be taken lightly. This is not just uh, skimpy hors d'oeuvres and light refreshments. Uh, but this is actually us, if there's anything uh, remotely close to an altar call in the Episcopal Church, it's the call to communion. You come forward, what do you bring with you? Nothing. You come forward, you kneel, take the posture of a beggar with empty hands, and all you do is receive. All you do is receive, which is one of the reasons why we changed our, um, our post-communion prayer. We took that prayer out of the main body before we received to after we received. Let me read that to you. O Lord and Heavenly Father, we, thy humble servants, entirely desire thy fatherly goodness, mercifully to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. It's after God has done his work on us that we, in turn, hand over our lives as a living sacrifice to him. There's a great uh, funny line in, in right one that says, and although we be unworthy to offer unto thee any sacrifice, but, <laughs> but we're going to try. And it causes confusion. 
uh, because I want to be very clear that communion is about something that God does to us and for us. It's directed at us. It's not us directing it to God. The only sacrifice involved is an acknowledgement of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, which is why Cranmer went out of his way, and we do this today. Who made there? Where? There, on a hill outside of Calvary 2,000 years ago. That's where the once and for all sacrifice was made. We're remembering the sacrifice here at the table, but we're not reenacting it. And so uh, that's a, a pretty good segue uh, into, uh, and then, of course, of both kinds, it's kind of hard to, uh, <clears throat> to, uh, to think that this was possible in our day and age, but the cup of the Lord is not to be denied uh, to lay people for both the parts of the Lord's sacrament by Christ's ordinance and commandment ought to be ministered to all Christian men and women uh, alike. Uh, there was a time in which uh, one, and this is still true in some uh, Orthodox churches, and was true for medieval Roman Catholicism, that the priests would do communion, and the only people who would take the bread and the wine were the priests. The lay people would just sit and watch which is why they would elevate the bread and the wine, because just to gaze upon it, if it really did become Jesus, was efficacious, right? It, it, it worked, uh, but they weren't ever called forward. And then finally, when people started to loosen up a little bit, they let the lay people uh, have the bread, uh, but not the wine. Why? What happens if you spill the wine? If you believe that Jesus is actually present in it and you spill it, you're in trouble. I mean, I actually was in a um, Roman Catholic congregation in the Caribbean. Uh, Lauren and I were visiting, and there were all these big fans going, and uh, the priest walked down into the aisle with the cup, and the fan was so strong that it actually blew the top of the wine, onto, splattered onto the congregation, and it was like a late-night horror movie. Women began to shriek, uh, and it was like the worst thing that could possibly happen because how do you get Jesus back into the cup? I'm not really, I mean, this, it's a serious issue uh, if, if your theology uh, is there. So I'm not belittling it. I'm just saying that, that at that time, and it was a big deal, uh, that the reformers were doing something very radical by saying, no, the lay people should have both the bread and the wine and communicate in that fashion. Uh, and that was uh, something that just wasn't done. Uh, but we kind of spearheaded uh, that move and certainly take it for granted. To look at some of the things that have happened over the years, uh, the way that things have changed, this is a helpful little document uh, that um, uh, you can't really see the red. You have to work on that, Gil. Can you see the red in the back? Yeah. All the men who are colorblind are like, yeah, whatever. Oh, you can't see anything? Okay, well, I'll just, uh, I'll just, uh, I'll just walk through it. So in 1552 in England... This was the, the order of communion. The sursum corda is the lift up your hearts, for all you Latin scholars in the room. Lift up your hearts. And then the sanctus is the holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. And then uh, actually is something that they would do different, uh, which is in a better place. Uh, they would then go from the sanctus. They do the prayer of humble access then. Right? This is Allah, Isaiah chapter 6. The seraphim singing around the throne of God, and as a result of standing in God's holiness, what is Isaiah's response? Falls on his knees. Woe be unto me, I am a man of unclean lips. So that was the idea behind that. 
and then we would have our uh, communion prayer, uh, the words of institution, and then you would immediately take communion, very much in the same way we do now, except the Lord's Prayer would come later on. And then you would do the oblation. Now, Lord, here we present and offer ourselves. So in the United States, the Book of Common Prayer, 1662, which is really, you can see there's really almost no change except they add the Lord's Prayer at the end uh, in 1662. Uh, there was very, that's the prayer book we used as colonists. That was just what we used. In 1789, uh, we, we um, because of a deal struck with the Scottish Episcopal Church, I don't really want to get into it, but basically the Scots said, we'll make you some bishops if you promise to use our prayer book. And it's been a bone of contention ever since. It's, it's really not, uh, it's still, hey, when in doubt, just mash on the cord, Gil. Just kick it. Okay. All right, how about that? So it's an electrical problem. I really did step on the cord and it worked. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. So we, in, but in 1789, some interesting things. So that was our first, that was actually our second prayer book. We had another revision in 1892, which was very slight that for some, because it was so slight, Zach just passed over it. Uh, but one of the things that I do want uh, to show is that something, um, something did happen uh, that, um, that, um, that changed. So from 1552, even from 1607 when we landed at Jamestown, all the way up to 1979, when we did the Sanctus, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Glory be to thee, O Lord most high. It stopped there. And in 1979, uh, 427 years later, we, start, we added the, and even the 1979 prayer book says, here may be added. It's not mandatory, but it's kind of crept in. The blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, why would they add that in 1979? I mean, 427 years. Why add it now? Well, you're right. There's no good reason to add it. Um, <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes. Uh, there's no real good reason. It was just, well, one, the 1979 is largely a, a product of the Roman Catholic liturgical renewal movement, which, by the way, I'm totally in favor of. It actually, in many ways, I'm not the biggest fan of the 79, but I, I, I do think that the Roman Catholics had the right idea when they began to look uh, at, they finally began to grapple with the fact that liturgy conveys something. Liturgy shapes you. So when I'm at the deathbed of somebody, they can't remember their husband's name, they can't remember their wife's name, but you know what they remember? The prayers, they remember Bible verses, they remember hymns. That stuff has a way of really getting into us to the extent that anytime somebody starts messing with the liturgy, right, it's, it, it, you're messing with, it's personal. It's absolutely personal. But the Roman Catholics had it right to say, it's, it shapes you. And so we need to be more thoughtful about how we're doing this. Now, the changes that we've made at the Advent have not been like the renewal movement of, well, we've got a new idea, we're moving forward. All of the changes have been going, um, according to Huey Lewis in the news, going back in time. 
Right? So actually, any changes that we've made at the advent have been in a fairly, well, not fairly, an uber uh, traditional movement. But why would anybody be against, blessed be the name, uh, uh, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? It's biblical, right? Where does that come from? Palm Sunday. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Palm Sunday. It's Jesus riding in on the back of the colt and, and the people waving palm branches and laying their coats down. What does that have to do with Holy Communion? Absolutely nothing. Right? It has nothing to do with it, except, except the people who added it wanted to give the impression that at that point in the service, who was coming into the bread? Who was coming into the wine? Jesus. And so if that's true, it would make people believe that all of a sudden he's here when he wasn't before. And he's here objectively. Uh, rather, here because he promised to be here. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I will be in the midst of them. And quite frankly, um, you know, a lot of folks who get ordained, they get very excited about the sacramental life of a priest. And I love it. There's no greater joy that I have than uh, baptizing individuals, uh, sharing, uh, presiding at the Lord's table, and administering communion. I absolutely love it. But do you know what the prerequisite is for that? What do you need to be able to do to actually be at the table and to be at the font? Literally. You have to be able to read. Quite frankly, any of you, and anybody who can read, you could read the communion service, couldn't you? Yeah, you, you could. I'm talking about, I wouldn't recommend you go home and do this, because uh, you'll burst into flames. Uh, but, um, but what about preaching? It's different, isn't it? It's different. It's a lot. This is the whole character, conviction, character, competency thing. Anybody can read. It's somebody wholly different that has been trained and is committed to a right handling of God's word. And under, the reason why I love baptism, the reason why I love uh, presiding at Holy Communion is because it's an extension of the handling of God's word. It's me gossiping the gospel, articulating what Jesus has done uh, for you through his, uh, through his death and through his resurrection. It's another sermon. It's another sermon. But I don't leave that as, as its own. I was talking to another pastor recently who, um, who said, you know, the sermon really doesn't matter. The liturgy does all, its work, does all the work for me. I said, well, how do you explain the Episcopal Church? If that's true, if the liturgy is enough and just having communion as much as you possibly can, how do we get where we are? And I would say because it's a misunderstanding and a not handling God's word rightly and understanding the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of Holy Communion as an extension of that or, moreover, being rooted uh, in that. Uh, but because I'm sensitive, uh, uh, believe it or not, I am sensitive. I'm actually very, you know, when I was getting married, um, Lauren, uh, my grandmother told Lauren that uh, don't mistake Andrew's uh, insensitivity for apathy, uh, which was not helpful. Um, but, uh, and I think she's right. I, 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 I tend to suppress uh, things, but I do, care, uh, I do care deeply. 
uh, about what people think. I'm a firstborn, uh, and I will admit that a lot of the changes uh, that we've made, as small and as slight as they may be to our liturgy, uh, have upset some people, and, and I feel terrible about that. And I admit that we've not done the job that I'm doing right now uh, of explaining uh, why we made those changes. And at the very end of the day, the changes that we make are to make crystal clear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, it's not just Andrew and the clergy sitting around over beer saying, hey, I got an idea. It's not that at all. But actually, we're looking back to those whose shoulders we stand upon and to say, you know what? Maybe older ways are better ways. Right? We're not doing this because we like Elizabethan English, but because it communicates the gospel uh, as clearly uh, as, as possible. And in fact, at the 730, uh, we don't use uh, the blessed is he who comes uh, in the name of the Lord. And so after Lent, um, we're going to drop it. Uh, we're going to do what we do at 730, and we're going to do what uh, the prayer book allows us to do, and simply uh, do the sanctus uh, that acknowledges God's holiness. And then as a result of that, we simply are going to kneel, uh, understanding who Jesus is and, and who uh, we are. Now, I'm saying this because most of you aren't even going to notice it. Uh, we did it this, I'm going to throw the vestry under the bus, uh, just to see if the vestry would notice when we had our vestry commissioning service, just the vestry members were there and the clergy. I left out the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know how many vestry members noticed it was gone? Zero. And you call yourselves leaders. Um, um. Yeah, that, that, it's... Admittedly, admittedly, that, that could be the case. But um, I, we got into a little bit more of the theology in the last uh, lecture that I did or the last class I did on, on the Lord's Supper. Uh, but I hope that, uh, that you are able, uh, and I can, we can make this available, I think we have before, on the, on the website, just so you can see the flow of, um, of what what's going on and, and, and what we're trying uh, to do. And also that any changes that are made to any part of our service are not arbitrary. As I mentioned last week, you know, it would be ridiculous of us and bad stewardship if we said we're never going to change anything full stop. I mean, that would just be a nonsense. Um, and there are times where we're going to make mistakes. Uh, I, I think that we've kind of moved beyond it, but uh, one of the changes that, that was made was to allow the choir to sing the psalm at 11 o'clock. Right, so the choir sings a whole lot more now, uh, especially at the 11 o'clock uh, for morning prayer. Um, so to say that, that we're never, ever going to change anything full stop, uh, I think would, um, would limit our flexibility that we need in ministry to allow the choir to minister in song uh, in a way that maybe they're not doing uh, right now, uh, to do things a little bit differently at uh, the 5 o'clock, which incidentally, as I said before, is probably liturgically our most traditional service, uh, even though it, it's got the reputation as being the contemporary service. And so uh, I, I'm not uh, opposed uh, to change, but I am opposed to change for the wrong reasons. Right? Uh, what we do on Sunday mornings is not an experiment. 
It's not Andrew's little Petri dish where he's experimenting and tinkering uh, with things. As I said last week, I'm dispositionally a very conservative person. Uh, I don't like change uh, whatsoever. You can talk to my wife about that. Uh, in fact, I got upset because somebody bought grape nuts rather than all brand, um, which is terrible. Who eats grape nuts? All brand's so much better. Anyway, so dispositionally, that's, uh, that's where I am. But um, understanding uh, the Lord's Supper, because the other thing I will say about it too, and the reason why I like that Advent is a morning prayer parish, and that is we, we alternate, is that Holy Communion can become commonplace. Shame on us. When it just becomes rote and we go up and we either pass through the stations or we go up and we kneel and we head out, I, I actually appreciate the people that, that feel like, you know what, I'm going to just dwell at the rail for a little bit and pray. I'm not recommending all of you do that. Um, but, uh, but it means something. It really, does, it really does mean something. And I think that the frequency that we have it uh, means that often the significance of it is, is lost. Many of you know the story of, well, maybe you don't, Charles Simeon, the great uh, rector of Holy Trinity Cambridge uh, in England, uh, was converted stressing out over communion. Uh, all students at Cambridge and Oxford at the time were required to receive Holy Communion uh, at Easter. And uh, Simeon uh, was really afraid to receive communion because he was not sure that he put his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was actually meditating on whether or not he should receive Holy Communion that pushed him over the edge into receiving communion and putting his trust in Christ. And his life was changed. Why? Because he, thought, he actually thought about what was going on and what he was doing and, and the deep meaning of what Jesus had, had done for him. It wasn't just, well, we're having communion this morning. Uh, I'm going to go up. I mean, because it really takes a lot, doesn't it? Here's the other difference between baptism and Holy Communion and why it's so controversial. You can avoid a baptism service, can't you? If you read, we're baptizing babies next week, I'll go to a different service. But avoiding communion, remaining in your pew, that actually takes some courage, doesn't it? Because everybody's going to wonder, why is Andrew staying in his pew? And I'll be honest, I, I've not, there have been times where I've not taken communion because I've either had a falling out with somebody uh, or, or whatever it is. And I'm not going to go into gory details, but... I've done that before, and, 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 and that's a hard thing because it puts the spotlight on you, but, but it is what it is. I'm going to stop blathering at, at, this, uh, at this point. Questions, comments, concerns? Yes, I am. Yeah, in some ways, in some ways it's not. I've got to be very careful because there are, well, I'll just say it. There are parts of the 5 o'clock I don't like. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty, again, I'm, I'm grumpy. I can be cantankerous. And if anything's just a little bit different, it throws me off too. Uh, so I don't like it. So in some ways, if, yeah, so in some, yeah, right. So in some, uh, so at the 5 o'clock, the thought there is that the prayers are basically the same in form, but some, well, almost all of them are. Uh, but some we've tweaked if certain words have lost their meaning or their definition has changed. 
Uh, and in some ways, we've added words back in, even though they're hard words, like miserable offenders, or there is no health in us. Uh, the reason why people didn't like them and why they were removed is because they're pretty ex self-explanatory, right? You don't need a, a source with you to figure it out. Uh, so, but there are some words um, that are hard, like it, it's meet and right to do. I don't know what that means. Uh, or, uh, and even words, trying to unpack words like oblation. What does that mean? What is an oblation? Uh, so one of the things that we are working on is a booklet that anyone can pick up that basically is a tutorial to our whole service. So you'll be able to look up, it's like, oh, that's what oblation means too. So I don't believe in dumbing it down just because the culture's gotten dumber. Uh, but if, if, it's, if it's impenetrable and they're not hearing the gospel, it's worth considering. I mean, the thing that we don't show up there is that there was a 1549 prayer book, and in three years' time, Cranmer changed it, meaning as soon as the 1549 went to print, he got to work on revising it. And so this notion that things need to stay the way that they are forever and ever, Cranmer even said, that's not true. Like, I just released a prayer book. Guess what? I'm going to change it in three years. But he's not changed it radically. He's all about, and Bootser was helpful with this, being as clear as he can possibly be about the gospel in the liturgy. Anybody else? Yeah, Jane. Um, Andrew, I was just going to say, as a lifelong Episcopalian who can get very comfortable with the liturgy that I've grown up with, I really appreciate the emphasis that the Advents put on um, what's behind the liturgy and why we say what we say and how it really does shape our understanding of um, God. And I, I think it's really important that, that we... Um, I, if we don't, then we just become an Elizabethan relic. We become a museum piece. And, um, and, and that's, that's something that, that I want to avoid. Uh, obviously, uh, but also, again, understanding the liturgy as a teaching tool. Uh, in fact, today, uh, the confirmation class up at Camp McDowell is getting a tutorial. They're going through uh, an what we call an instructed Eucharist. Maybe you've been there. Uh, and we've even thought about doing one of those at the Advent, where we actually go through the service and talk about every single, not every single, but most of what we're doing. And now we're doing this. Why do we do this? What does it mean? Uh, that's it. What's that? Yeah, slow jamming. Yeah, that's, I don't know that most Adventers would say that, Dan, but uh, God bless you. Okay. All right, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.